So starting there in chapter 24, Genesis, in verse 1, it says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hands under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you would not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the w- woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my, favorite, my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thought, under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out from Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down, kneel down near the well beside the town. It was toward evening, the time the woman go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master, Abraham, make me successful today. See, I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one who you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with, with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet him, or meet her, sorry, and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly, quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becker and two gold bracelets weighing ten, ten shekels. Then he said, or then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. When the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, or then the Lord, sorry, then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led on the journey, as, as for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca and a, and a had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to, to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nosery and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he had heard Rebecca telling he had heard Rebecca tell what the man said to her. He went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. 
Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for them and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, and, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master, my master abundantly, and he has become very wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose, in whose land I live. But go to, his, to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, what if the woman would not come back with me? He replied, the Lord, before, the Lord before whom I have walked faithfully will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and for my father's family. You will be released from my oath if, when you go to my clan, they refuse to give her to you. Then you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside the spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a drink, uh, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink I'll, and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen before my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder Shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, who Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelet on her arm, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, whom I had led so who had led me on the right road to get the, to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. Who can say nothing to you, one, who can say nothing to you one way or the other? Here is Rebekah, take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah and also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who, who were with him, him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they, got to, when they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so. Then you may go. But he said to them, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked, will you go with, with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with the nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendant got ready and mounted the camel and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Behilai for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate 
As he looked up and he saw camels approaching, Rebecca also looked up, looking, looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Whew. All right. And that's how I met you. Okay. All right. A long passage, a lot of points in there. Oh, gosh. I feel like I need a drink of water now. I kind of regret not bringing my water bottle. Uh, let's have a quick prayer and then look at a few points as to, as to what this passage is actually talking about, okay? Uh, Heavenly Father, I think so much that we have the example of Rebecca and Abraham and even Abraham's servant uh, to, to help guide us, Lord, help us point the direction in which you desire for our lives. And I pray, Lord, as we go through this passage, even though it's long, even though there's a lot of content, Lord, we can draw very precise uh, and concise points that apply to our lives, even, our mo- even in our modern day. Uh, I love you, Lord, and I pray for your spirit to move in our hearts, Lord, to convict us and guide us. I pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Amen, indeed. Okay, well, let's look at a few points we have here. If you remember last week, Sam did uh, uh, Genesis 23, and that was a neg- uh, kind of a negative, bit of a positive uh, twist on it, but mostly negative uh, chapter, because that was the moment where Sarah died. Uh, one of our, our main characters for the last few weeks uh, was Sarah, and, and now she's gone. And even this chapter is bittersweet, because after this chapter... The Abraham and Sarah saga, the narrative of Abraham and, and Sarah, it's finished. We're transitioning away from it, and we, we're taking on this new couple, Rebecca and Isaac, and it is very, very bittersweet. And I think I have four points here, and each of these points connect to a certain, a certain character in the story, obviously except for the last one, but it's designed for us to actually get a sense of how Israel would have originally read this. Oh, thanks, Mia. Oh. <laughs> Rebecca? <laughs> mm. All right, I got some camels in the back. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on from that. So the first point I have here, Abraham, the partner of the promise. And if you know Abraham up to this point, he is a guy who cares a lot about the promise. And it's an example for us as well. The second one I have here is Rebecca. And she is a qu- she's quick to serve, clearly. Quick to serve, just like Mia. But she, but she is not a quick server. Now, I'll explain what that means in a moment. It's a little bit of a confusing uh, point. And finally, I have Eliezer. And if you wonder who is Eliezer, well, he's the unnamed servant, most likely in this passage. And in some former passages, it's been mentioned, and he is directed clearly by the divine. In fact, it's such a prevalent point that the entire story uh, is it's almost repeated twice. You're like, gosh, why do that? You're making it harder for whoever's going to preach on it. But... I think that's a very deliberate technique from the, from the author to make the point stick, that God is pulling some strings behind the scenes here. And finally, just to finish off, a very short point is we, as a group of people, we need to beware, beware of the snare or beware the snare. And that's a little bit more vague, a little bit more broad, but it will be a lot clearer once we get to that point, okay? So let's look at this first point here, Abraham, the partner of the promise. And like I said earlier, Abraham... He's on the way out. He doesn't have much life left in him. And it's understandable that he's trying to make some preparations for the future, even in our modern day. If we know we're going to keep the bucket, we like to arrange our will. Now, Abraham goes to the above and beyond, and he, he, he's arranging the wife for his son. So clearly, clearly he's, he, he's aware that his time is coming short. 
But what I find so interesting about what Abraham says in his final dialogue, he doesn't speak again after this point. He's gone after this. But in his final dialogue, it is all centered around one singular thing, and that's the promise given to him by God. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it that he would desire, first of all, Isaac to have a wife. Because the promise from God is about him being the father of many nations. If you're going to be a father of many nations, if you're going to have a lot of offspring, then of course that requires your son to have children as well. So he's prepping for the future. And in a similar way, we get a look at how his perspective is on the land of Canaan. Because the promise has two levels to it. Firstly, father of many nations. Secondly, there is a, a nation which one day the people of Israel will inherit. And this is why Abraham in this passage is so firm. Do not take Isaac back to where I'm from. He's already here. This is an inheritance. We don't want to be going anywhere else and, and hit some road bumps along the way, okay? And I, I, just, I just love that perspective that he primarily is focused on the promise, and I have, the, I have this quote here, and I feel like it summarizes it really nicely. Uh, it's from a commentator. Uh, his name is George... Oh, I've got to scroll all the way down. His name is uh, Gordon, sorry, Gordon Wenham. And he says, Abraham enters history through the divine promises of God. He passes out of history with this promise still on his lips. Everything about the story of Abraham is about the promise. And it shapes the way he does life. Even consider the way he does parenting. And obviously I was a little, a little bit reluctant to this point. It's a bit of a side point because I'm not a parent. But the way he chooses to parent is all based on the promise that he's been given. All based on the promise that he has been given. And so often I feel like we can look at the story of Abraham organizing a wife for Isaac. And through our modern lens we think, oh dude, that's a, that's a little overbearing dude. That's so it's, it's a little bit too much. Right? Let, 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 let him find some love, okay? Let him connect with the Canaanite woman. That's not, that's not what Abraham and his, I guess his life is orientated towards. And what I find really remarkable about this passage when it comes to parenting is that you get two examples of parents in this passage. The first one is Abraham, and the second one is Bethuel. You ask, who is this Bethuel, Bethuel character? We get barely anything on him. He is Rebecca's dad. We, we get barely anything the entire time, which is extraordinary Consider it's a patriarchal society. He is the father of this household, and he's barely present or a side character for the most important decision of his daughter's life. Doesn't that, isn't that interesting? Like, why would the author be doing this? I think, I think there's an important note even here for, for the parents of us or even the wider community that Abraham is, is an example of someone who is directly involved in shaping the next generation. He's not passive. He's not stepping back. And the temptation so much when it comes to parenting would be, well, I'm going to let them kind of shape their own destiny. <laughs> it's a common parenting kind of philosophy. I'm going to let them come to that conclusion themselves. Now, is there merit to that kind of thought process? Yeah, of course. No one, there's no premise and no basis, basis for forcing someone to follow Jesus. Of course not. But at the same time, that thought process is so dangerous because it leads to becoming like Bethuel. 
It leads to us being passive in how we parent, okay? This is just a side point, but I feel like it's really important that we recognize that as a community, we have to be involved in the next generation. We have to be involved in raising the teens, even those who are younger than the teens, okay? And so I just want to conclude that point. Abraham is an active partner, active partner of the promise. He doesn't just sit back and wait. He's participating. He's involved. And that leads into the next, I guess, the, the next uh, point I have here, which is all about Rebecca. And I was reading a lot of commentaries on Rebecca, and Rebecca is an interesting character because a lot of commentaries refer to her in some sense as a second Abraham. You think, well, she, the second Abraham? Really? But it, it's actually stressed a lot. I was actually listening to a podcast. Uh, it's a Bama podcast, and this guy there, Marty Solomon, and he, he, he talks about Rebecca as not just being of the same physical DNA as, as uh, Abraham, but she's also of the same spiritual DNA. She's cut from the same cloth. She takes on the same qualities and characteristics as Abraham. Because how we first introduced to Abraham, he leaves, he leaves his home. God calls and he leaves, he responds. How we first introduced to Rebecca here, she receives a call and she responds. I mean, what a, what a radical idea. I mean, put yourself in Rebecca's shoes. I mean, this guy has come up to you and he says, well, I, I've got this, this other guy, this friend of mine, he's really keen to marry you. You've never met him. You've only just met me. Trust me, it's legit. <laughs> Gosh, wouldn't you have a few questions? Wouldn't you be like, okay, this is a little bit doubtful here? I, at least from our modern perspective, imagine the questions you would at least be asking about Isaac. I mean, if he's going to be your future husband, how tall is this guy? You know? <laughs> well, what, what kind of income stream does he have? Does he like kids? Is he a family man? No, we don't get any of those questions from Rebecca at all. And in fact, all we really get is that she says, yeah, I will go. And I think the clue we have here for why she was willing to go comes from the conversation between her brother and her father in verse 50, 51. And they say... In verse 51, let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. It has become very apparent to the entire household that God is behind the scenes here. God is doing something here and it's not just a personal preference. It's not just a random call. It's something cosmic. There's a larger purpose. And I think Rebecca is the type of woman who tunes in on that. She recognizes that this major life decision I'm about to make isn't even about me. It's about God. God calls and I respond. And I think this entire chapter is framed by characters who are filled with humility. We'll look at a few more in a moment. But Rebecca is a woman who's defined by humility in the sense that she doesn't look towards her own interests, but towards a greater interest of God. Which is a radical idea, especially when you consider some people talk about Rebecca being like in her, her mid-teens. What a crazy idea. To leave your home, everything you've ever known, your friends, your family, all your security, on the whim of somebody else. Man, it has to be because she recognizes there's a divine element to this core. And in that sense, she's just like Abraham. Which isn't, I mean, if you're Isaac, probably not so great, right? To know that your, your wife resembles your dad in some way. But 
it's such a cool, it's such a cool component of her character. And I think that humility comes across in a few different ways, right? Because if you look at the very next slide here, the way she serves. Isn't she like crazy humble in the way she serves? Like look there in verse 18 and verse 20, when she first approaches uh, the servant. I mean, her response is, when he asks for water, it's like, yeah, I'm there. For sure I'm going to serve. For, yeah, take some water. And it's, it's, such, it's such a radical insight. When she's called to serve, when someone says, here, here, I have a need, there's no like begrudging attitude about it. There's no sense of like, oh, this is kind of inconvenient. It's hot today. Get your own water. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure the servant had many of his other servants with him simultaneously. Why not ask one of those servants to do it? But she sees there is a need, and because of her, her, her humility, because of her posture of her heart, she goes to meet that need. No ifs, no buts, that's where she is. And, and she is very much like Abraham in that way as well, because if you remember back, back in chapter 18, Abraham, Abraham's the same. Hospitable, willing to serve, quick to serve. And... Uh, I guess the question I have for us here is, I mean, are we the type of people who see a need and then just go to meet that need? Are we people who make it complicated? (laughs) Do we go a roundabout way? Or do we kind of maybe serve, but with motives which are maybe a little bit blurry sometimes? I mean, does she have any insight when she comes to meet the servant in the desert by the well of the larger scheme of things? No. Absolutely not. She serves for the sake of serving, and that's the type of woman Rebecca is. She is a quick server. Well, she's quick to serve, but she's not a quick server. <laughs> got the, the wrong way around. And you may think, oh, what, what on earth does that mean? To be quick to serve, but to not be a quick server. Well, I think so often we can be quick to the gun, right? As in, like, we, in some sense, we can, we can, be, quick to, we can be quick to step forward and, and meet a need, but how often do we actually follow through with that need? How often do we go the whole distance? I mean, I think when I was, uh, a perfect, illust- perfect illustration would be when I was a child, I mean, my mum, of course, would often ask me to clean my room. Now, would I do it? Yeah, technically. Technically, I would do it, okay? But the mess which I created in my room would find its way under my bed. Now, quick to serve, I would do it straight away, but mum, here, it's done. But there's something missing behind the hearts. There's something different, and we see that Rebecca is not someone who just goes in and out when it comes to serving. I mean, consider verse 19 here. It says, after she had given him a drink, so the initial, servant, initial, initial serving activity, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. He has 10 camels. Now, I'm not an expert on any animals, but I was kind of Googling it, and apparently, according to Google at least, an average camel can drink up to 100 liters of water, which is insane, right? And considering the servant has just come on a trip, which is roughly one month through the deserts to get to their destination, I would probably wager those camels are indeed thirsty. They do need a lot of water. But she, she gives them enough water until the camels are satisfied, until they've had enough. We I mean, think about that. And up on, the, up on the screen there, that's just a, a picture to give you understanding. That's actually an ancient Middle Eastern well, a cistern. 
It's not maybe when we think of a well, we think of like the rope and the bucket, and you know, think, oh, well, maybe that's not too hard for Rebecca, okay? No, Rebecca would have to go down the stairs, <laughs> take a bucket of her own, go down one after the other after the other again and again until she had provided enough water. Gosh, this woman is hardworking, right? Obviously, she, she doesn't quit. She keeps on going and going until she completes her task. I just love that moment where the servant, in verse 21, it says, Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. And when I first read this, I'm like, oh, that's kind of brutal to watch her doing all the hard work and just chilling there. But, I mean, it's insight into what Eliezer was after. I mean, he, so many of us would be quick to serve, but when we get to bucket number 20, <laughs> what's our attitude like? When five camels have had their full, but there's still five camels remaining, would we still continue? Would we persevere like Rebecca? But she goes until every camel has had their full. She's quick to serve, but she is not a quick server. And i got to ask us, guys, do we have that type of hearts? Because what I love about the story of Rebecca is that we can look at her serving attitude, the way she gives to other people, and we can see that is a way to diagnose the deeper posture of a heart towards God. It starts off with serving to men, to people, and then it leads to her relationship to God, to her responding with, to God. I mean, I guess the question I have for us, I mean, if you had to look at the way you serve other people, what would that Suggest about your attitude of your hearts. Are you someone who gives up quickly? And if so, what would that suggest about your relationship with God? What would it suggest about it? If you're not willing to serve people, the people you can touch, the people you can see, interact with, if you're not willing to show love to these people, my gosh, I have a hard time believing you'll be able to show love to a God you cannot see, a God you cannot touch. It's a challenging idea for us. And she is a woman who is absolutely humble, and it's just amazing to see. But let's go on to Eliezer now, okay? And Eliezer is someone who's directed by the divine. And what I find interesting so far between Abraham, Rebecca, and Eliezer, there's a connecting characteristic. Each of them are orientated towards God because of a humble heart. We see exactly the same thing here with the servant as well. What I find so remarkable about this is, I guess initially, the likelihood of this working out seems slim. I mean, even at the beginning of the passage, right, Eliezer says to Abraham, well, if this doesn't work out, if the woman won't come back with me, what happens? Do I still have to keep this oath? So even Eliezer realizes that the odds are definitely stacked against this mission. It's a far-fetched mission. But what I find really cool is that uh, what I find really cool is that he is so focused on, on God's operation behind the scenes. And uh, there's obviously in verse 51, there's a passage here, was, uh, in verse 51 of the passage, it says, Here is Rebecca, take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's sons as the Lord has directed. The same passage I talked about earlier, but what I'm trying to make, what the point I'm trying to make here is that it's obvious that God is doing something behind the scenes. It's not just people. It's not just coincidences. There's a deeper happening here. And even Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, it says, In all the ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that's exactly what we see Eliezer doing. Is Eliezer, when he gets to the point where he realizes that this is the woman for my master son, she is the one. What I find so compelling about his response is the order in which he gives praise. Look at this for a moment. In verse 27, it says, Praise, to be, the, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. Who does he go to first in terms of giving praise? To God and then to Abraham. <laughs> the first two people mention God and then Abraham, but then he continues, As for me, the Lord has led me on, on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And what I find so compelling here is that here's an example of a guy who has succeeded. He has made it. He has, he has accomplished his mission. How often when we have success in life, do we turn and look to God? Or when life is going good, how often do we kind of fall back into ourselves? Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look at the kingdom I've built for myself. But Eliezer, his first response is to turn back to God and acknowledge that he is the one pulling the, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it's so compelling, especially because it's far-fetched. The whole thing would never have possibly happened. Think about some of the things that needed to happen for all of us to come together. So firstly, he had to go to Abraham's homeland, find his relatives whom he had never even met before, and these relatives have never even met Abraham before. Far-fetched. And then he had to convince the daughter from that particular household that it was a good idea to follow him back to a different land to marry this guy she's never met. My gosh, the odds are stacked against him. There's no way to do this unless it's from the Lord. I think that's an important point. Because remember, this is a how I met your mother type of chapter. Israel would have been reading this and thinking, gosh, if it wasn't for all these coincidences, if it wasn't for all these things coming together, do we even exist? Would we even work out? If God wasn't the one who delivered success, I mean, there's no way it would have worked out. And think of how, how motivational that would have been for Israel when they're about to enter back into the promised land. And they're hearing stories of giants. Or think about what that would have meant to Israel when they're underneath a tyrannical king who's leading them in wickedness. Or when they get exiled, you know, conquered by a, a different empire and Israel's literally scattered across the world. They could look back on this story and know that whatever odds are against them right now, my gosh, God can conquer the odds. God can make it work. We exist because of God, and we will continue to persevere because of God. I think that's such a powerful statement, especially for us as well. I mean, as disciples of Christ, we have been working against the odds. I mean, the Bible describes us, describes us at one point in our lives enslaved to sin. In fact, it goes even further saying that we were dead to sins. That's a crazy idea. That we were dead at one point, and normally and dead, dead is a pretty good way of saying final, it's finished. 
The odds are stacked against us, but the, the, the message of the gospel, the message, the core message of the gospel is that when Jesus goes up on the cross, he defies the odds. He makes a way when there is literally no way for us to be connected back to God. And as relevant as this was for ancient Israel, it is as relevant for us as new Israel, the new group, the new people of God. We got to realize that even if the odds have already been conquered, success has already been given. And even as, as, as Cameron was talking, Cameron and Lana were talking about earlier, that's going to provide a layer of hope. Help us to look forward into the future and not to dwell on the presence. And it's such a powerful thing. And I just want to finish off really quickly. Whoops. No, I totally just skipped it. You have to help me out here, Jack? Perfect. Thank you, Jack. Okay. I just want to finish up here with one short final point. And it's the point which is probably addresses one of the, the, the most confusing aspects of the passage. And that is, why is Abraham so firm about, not, about Isaac not taking a wife from amongst the Canaanite women? It seems, it seems a little bit odd. Is he racist? Is he just, is he not, are they not beautiful enough for his son? Are they not good enough? Why, why go back to his homeland? Why does Rebecca have to be from Abraham's family line? I think the answer we find here is encapsulated in this point, beware of the snare. Because I think Abraham is connecting the dots here. He's recognizing a biblical truth that we, we as people following the promise of God is going to be challenging because there's a bunch of snares that get in the way. And just to summarize, there's this passage here in Exodus, uh, gosh, I've got to scroll down, in Exodus uh, uh, chapter 34, verse 11 to 16, it adds a lot of clarity. And it says there, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Prezerites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. What I love about that word snare is that it also means bait or lure. Clearly not good, okay? Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. This is not about who you marry. This is about who you worship. This is about who your God is. And the biblical message is that one of the main things that we get led away from our faithfulness to God is being tied to someone else who's faithful to a different God. And the, the biblical message is consistent. We see 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, do not be yoked with an unbeliever. And I tell you what, it was a problem for the ancient Israelites, and it's a problem for us today. We have to be a people who are, are extremely aware of the relationships we have and how they influence our primary relationship with God. We need to be thinking about that. And it may not be relationships. 
I mean, maybe you have something else in your life which leads you away from your relationship with God. Maybe it's, it doesn't have to be a, 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 you know, a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or anything of that nature or friend. It could be something else. Maybe it's your work. That your job has become a snare which has lured you away from what is most important. And whatever it may be, whatever it may be, my charge to finish this sermon is to get rid of it. Cut out the snare. Reorientate yourself back to what is most important in your life. Amen? Let's have a quick prayer, then we can have a song and have some fellowship. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, yeah, thanks so much, Lord, that you would give us this, this convicting story. It is challenging, Lord. It's from a different time, but I thank you, Lord, that it applies to us so well. That you would make a way for us against all odds, Lord, to have fellowship with you, to enter your kingdom. And I thank you for that sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. And I love you for that, Lord, and I pray that we can live up to the promise. That we as a group of people, we as new Israel, can live a promise-orientated life knowing that you have already achieved success for us. And that, that, that realization, Lord, that fact can shape every avenue of our relationships, the way we parent, the way we pursue spouses, Lord, in every possible avenue that we can be filled with humility knowing that you are the great conqueror on our behalf. And I love you, Lord. I pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Amen.